Hey guys, welcome to the very first episode of the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and I can't tell you how excited I am to finally kick this thing off. Uh, we've been planning and working on this thing for months now, and, and it's just exciting to finally see it all come to fruition. And man, we are just fired up about all the great content we have lined up for you guys, starting with this very first episode. Now, when we first started planning this thing, um, one of the first guys I wanted to get on here and, and talk to was Andy May of Michigan. Now, that name may or may not be familiar to you, but Andy is uh, he's just a regular guy. He works a, a typical nine to five type job, but he is um, very, very good at taking these short DIY public land hunts, uh, typically out of state and killing big mature bucks. Uh, he has it down to a science. And so I wanted to get him on here. Uh, if nothing else, kind of for selfish reasons for myself to to pick his brain, but I knew you guys would get a ton of great information from it as well. And uh, he definitely does not disappoint with this one. Uh, we we do a deep dive into his whole process, how he breaks down these properties from from cyber scouting to putting boots on the ground, and then how he executes a successful hunt. So a lot of great information coming at you. But before we jump on the phone with Andy. There's a few housekeeping items that we need to take care of. Um, first, th this episode of Deer Season 365 is brought to you by First Light Apparel. Now, not only is First Light a sponsor of the National Deer Association, but hey, they're also going above and beyond and donating a portion of all the sales of their Spectre line of camouflage back to the National Deer Association. They call that their Camo for Conservation Initiative. And we are extremely grateful for their support and just excited to be associated with those guys. So if you would check them out at firstlight.com. And while we're thanking folks, a big thanks to all of you who've participated in our online fundraisers since this whole pandemic took hold, you know, nearly a year and a half ago. Uh, I, I know the constant barrage of online raffles and sweepstakes from from all the different conservation organizations. Uh, it, it can get a little old and I understand and we hate, you know, that feeling too of constantly like we're constantly asking you guys for money. Uh, but unfortunately, that was just the uh, that was the nature of the beast with the with the hand we were dealt, you know, beginning in March of 2020 there, our main revenue stream, you know, these these local branch fundraisers completely got shut down and we had to find some alternatives and fortunately, man, you guys stepped up in a big way and have uh, done a tremendous job of supporting us through this this difficult time and and actually have kind of brought us out on the other side in, in better financial position than we've been in in a long time. So we're very thankful of that. And fortunately, there's there's some light now at the end of that tunnel because we're finally starting to see these our local branches um, have have in-person events again, you know, fundraisers field days, youth events, that kind of stuff are, are popping back up. And we're excited about that. And we would encourage you to check those out. You know, you can go to our website at deerassociation.com, click on that events link and find an event near you and, and get out there and, and check it out. Get involved with your local branch. Um, not only does that help them raise funds so they can do cool things for, for deer and, and hunters that they're in your community, but you know, it's also just a great way to, to get out of the house, kind of beat that cabin fever 
and get to hang out with some like-minded deer hunters and, and conservationists like yourself. You know, just a, a great time of fellowship and fun. So check those out. Um, let's see, one more thing before before we jump on the phone with Andy. I do want to ask you guys a little bit of a favor here, and that's just simply share this podcast with other people you know. Well, we're excited about it. We want it to grow, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. So if you could just share this episode with your friends, whether that be through social media, uh, email, or heck, even the old-fashioned way in a, in a real-life conversation, you know, just let them know about the, the Deer Season 365 podcast. Um, encourage them to give it a, to give it a listen. And uh, we would certainly appreciate that. So, uh, and the last but not least here, uh, as a token of our appreciation for all the new listeners out there, we've created a special National Deer Association membership offer just for you. Uh, You can go to our website again, that's deerassociation.com and click on the join or the renew link and use the promo code podcast. And it doesn't matter if it's uppercase or lowercase, either one will work. But that's going to get you $5 off a, a regular annual membership. So that'll be $30 for an annual membership. And we're going to throw in a free NDA hat as well. Uh, so a uh, cool little bonus there. You can, Not only do you get a discount on the price, but you're going to get a free hat to boot. And um, yeah, so we hope you'll take advantage of that. And I think with that, uh, we'll go ahead and jump on the phone here with Andy and and dive into some uh, really cool deer hunting strategy. All right, guys, I got Andy May on the line. Uh, Andy, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good, man. I uh, appreciate you having me on the podcast. Oh, no, not at all, man. I appreciate appreciate you taking your time out to come on here. Honestly, as soon as, as Lindsey Thomas and, and I started kind of making plans for this podcast and and, you know, who we wanted to get on here to interview. Uh, you, you were you were right there at the top of my list when it come to hunting strategy. Uh, and, and I guess part of that was uh, for selfish reasons, because I'm, I'm a public land bow hunter myself. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to get you on here to, to pick your brain a little bit about about that. You know, how you're consistently killing these these big mature bucks on these short DIY hunts. But, you know, I don't feel too guilty about it because I know I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of it as well. So. I'm um, look, looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I, uh, I love talking, uh, deer hunting and, you know, if, if anything I say can help, you know, even one guy out there, that's, that's cool with me because I was, I was in that position, you know, at one point too, where I was really searching for information and, and just really trying to learn. I still feel like I am, but you know, even more so, you know, in the younger years. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for helping some people out. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it's definitely uh, a lot easier these days. There's, there's so much information out there. Uh, so many podcasts, YouTube videos, you know, online content. It's uh, it's, we've come a long way from the early days when, you know, all you had was uh, maybe some VHS tapes or uh, some outdoor life magazines to, to go by. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It uh, there's a lot of information out there and it's, it's real easy to, I think it's real easy to take in almost too much. You know, I don't think anything is going to replace actual time in the woods and experience and just making those mistakes. And uh, I think that's, that's really how you develop into a good hunter. The the podcast and the videos and stuff certainly can lead you in that right direction and maybe shorten the learning curve a little bit, but 
got to get out there and just make those mistakes and learn from them. Absolutely. Look, I know, I know some of our listeners are, are probably familiar with who you are, um, particularly, you know, those that, that listen to Mark Kenyon's Wired to Hunt podcast. And, and I know you've been on some others as well, but um, maybe for those that, that may not recognize the name, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you to become a deer hunter? Yeah, uh, my name's Andy May. Um, I'm, I live in uh, southern Michigan. That's kind of where, well, it is where my hunting started. Um, hunting some, you know, very pressured areas here in Southern Michigan. I got a, a little bit later start in hunting than probably most guys. No one in my family hunted, you know, my dad didn't, uh, not, you know, none of my uncles, grandfather, nothing. Um, so I didn't really have any exposure to that. Um, not really, not really even anything in the outdoors other than some fishing, which was pretty much, which I did love to fish, but it was always just, you know, from the bank, you know, on the side of a river or, you know, on the bank of a lake or something. But it was right about the end of high school. I think I was 18. I did have a couple of cousins that started bow hunting. They had a friend that got them into it and they hunted for a year and they were just talking about how much fun it was. And I remember going over to their house and they were had their bow, their, their bows out and they were shooting their bows. And I always, I've always had a thing for bow and arrow. Didn't really own one growing up. There was one point when I was, when I was younger, um, I used to be like obsessed with the, the Robin hood movies, like all of them, <laughs> like the, the animated one. And then even like, you know, the, the ones that, you know, with Kevin Costner and everything, I just, something about the bow and arrow just really stuck with me. And when I saw them shooting that bow, I was like, man, that is cool. I really want to, I really want to get one. So I ended up getting one and, um, I live in a town that is, uh, has got a, I mean, Michigan in general, but this, this town in particular, huge hunting culture. It's got the the biggest archery and gun shop in the whole state. Um, tons of hunters, just a really strong culture. Well, they have a, they have an archery league, um, that they hold up on the you know second and third floor of this building every winter and my cousins were getting in it. And so I decided to join it with them. Um, you know, this is before I even really thought about hunting and, um, for whatever reason, I was just naturally good with a bow. Um, it was my first year shooting and I, I won first place in the league and it's just, it certainly isn't like that for everything I do, but it, for whatever reason, I was, I was pretty good with a bow. And then everybody just kept telling me, man, you should hunt, you should bow hunt. So, um, the next year I did, I started bow hunting and I, you know, killed a couple deer and I was just hooked, you know, I was, I was just hooked and pretty much from that first experience, it's like all I thought about, I mean, it became, I became so obsessed with it. I, I have a, I have a bit of an obsessive personality with things that, things that are difficult. I like, I like challenging myself with things that are difficult. I, I take like, you know, working out and fitness pretty seriously. I like putting myself through difficult things and, and trying to get better at them. I just, and, I, and if it's something like, you know, well, something like hunting, you know, I, I tend to dive real deep into it and I'm just glad I did because it, it really did kind of change my life. You know, it's, it directed my life more to the outdoors and now pretty much, you know, if I have a spare minute and, and a lot of the plans that I make throughout the year have all geared around the outdoors. So, 
it certainly has changed it for the better, um, in my opinion. So uh, the first couple of years, it was, um, you know, just local hunting in Michigan and had some success on, you know, a couple does and a small buck and then another doe. And then it was like my second year of hunting. Um, I ended up, I ended up shooting a really nice Michigan buck. I've told this story a few times on the podcast, but I, I shot a really nice uh, Michigan buck and just like all nice bucks do, it got a lot of attention and, you know, I didn't really know what I had done. And, and I mean, looking back, it's, I mean, it's not like a, a boot and Crockett or anything, but it was just, you know, big deer don't fall too regularly in Michigan. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it cost some people's eye and obviously that felt pretty good to a young, you know, a young beginning bow hunter. And, um, it was really from that day forth that I kind of focused on shooting, like going after like nicer deer. Um, yes, I still did my doe hunting and everything, but I just kind of focused more towards, you know, bigger and older deer and consistently found success, you know, from that point forward, um, mostly, uh, well, a hundred percent due to just being stubborn and persistent, you know, in my <laughs> early years. Um, not a lot of skill involved, but man, I, I just hunted every day. I, I hunted every day of the season. And, um, I, I, even in college, you know, when I should have been, you know, probably partying a little bit too much, I would, I would make sure I'd get my hunting in, you know, and then go to the party. So, you know, it, it once I started working, I work at a school, so I'm on a school schedule. I work at a school for uh, special needs children. And I'm an occupational therapist. So we have, you know, we have our vacation time that's already scheduled and it's really difficult for me to take time off. I can't really do that. But what it did do was allowed me to hunt most evenings. And that's what I did for years and years and years. Just every night of the season, I would be out hunting on the weekends. I'd be hunting all day. And, you know, that's, that's kind of laid the groundwork of, you know, I guess developing into, you know, whatever type of hunter I am now, um, just a lot, a lot of time, a lot of obsession and a lot of mistakes and learning, but that's kind of how I got started. Well, I can definitely relate with a lot of that story as far as the, uh, you know, not having a mentor or, or anyone in my family who hunted, I, I was in the same boat, uh, growing up and, and took an interest in, in hunting by myself. But, uh, you were much Faster learner, obviously, because you, you found success a whole lot quicker than I did. It, it took me a while. But uh, I, I mean, how did you from from that point you started out? You said you didn't really have a mentor. Was it just strictly just going out in the woods and, and trial and error? Or did you have anybody showing you the ropes at all? Or you know? Well, I, I think one of the things um, one of the things that helped me as far as. Um, you know, I think consistently getting on bigger deer early on. One of the things that helped me is I, I didn't have a mentor because if you look at, I mean, your, your average deer hunter, um, and, and this is not a knock on anybody You're you know, everybody has different goals and, and I'm all for whatever you, what makes you happy in, in deer hunting, but your average deer hunter does not, you know, shoot a mature, mature buck every year. So I didn't have dad or grandpa that taught me that you sit at, you know, you sit in this stand on this field edge, you know, over this corn pile, nobody taught me that. So I, I did what made sense to me. 
I hunted very mobile from the very beginning. Um, I had a cheap, heavy, you know, chain link hang on stand. But um, what I would do is I would hang it pretty much every time and take it down every time. And I just moved. I kept moving to where I saw deer move. Um, so I was a mobile hunter almost right from the beginning. Those, those first two years, um, I sat, I was, you know, going out with my cousins and maybe a couple of friends I'd sit and just, you know, stands that they had up, but I, I didn't really stick with that because I started hunting on my own more. Cause I, like I said, I was hunting every day and I, I just did, I, I moved and, um, I got on to deer and I made the mistakes and I missed and I'd see a big buck over here and I'd move my stand over there. And it's just kind of how I, I developed that kind of mobile hunting style. If, if I had to say, you know, who my mentors were, once I started getting more interested in mature or, you know, bigger bucks, just like any guy, you're going to, you're going to start seeking out information from guys that are successful doing that. And you know, back then it was articles and like you said, VHS tapes and, and things like that. So I, you know, obviously I consumed a lot of that content being from Michigan. John Eberhardt was a very well-known, um, local hunter, Michigan guy that one of the, you know, very, very few guys in Michigan that consistently killed mature bucks without owning land or hunting some primo piece of property. There's, there's some guys that do it here, but they, they own some really good land or they own some land that butts up to a, you know, a Metro park or something like that. But you know, he did not And there's, there's very few guys here and he was writing books and articles. So I consumed a lot of his content and, um, there were guys like him and, you know, guys like Miles Keller and Andre DeQuisto and a lot of these guys that I, I really consume their content. And a lot of cases, I even reached out to them, you know, as a young hunter, I had several conversations with John. I had several conversations with Miles and I was kind of that annoying guy, you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that reached out to, uh, you know, the kind of, I guess my hunting idols and people I wanted to learn from, but I was completely eaten up with it. And I, I've said this before, you know, it's, it's been my goal, whether I've, you know, consciously thought about it or not, I do now just to be, become a better bow hunter to keep improving. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with like trying to build a, a wall full of big bucks. Um, that's not what motivates me, but it does motivate me to keep getting better. I don't want to be stagnant. I don't want my know, I don't want to just buy a piece of property and, and shoot, you know, a nice deer off the property. I want to keep getting better because I'm very cognizant that, you know, I have a lot to learn and I have a lot of different types of terrain and to learn and uh, to get better at. So I've kind of always had that mentality. And I think, I think by hunting alone and not really having a, a dedicated mentor, but then seeking out information from some guys that were obviously really skilled, that's kind of what set me down that path yeah that that that's a good point i mean you do have to you have to be careful i guess who you're who you're getting your information from and you know we're talking about all the available information out there today it's it's kind of the same thing and you even mentioned on how you know there's you can almost get information overload but um Mm -hmm. yeah you have you have to look at the source i guess and if they're not you know doing the the accomplishing the things you want to accomplish then yeah i guess you need to be careful of uh 
taking their advice or, or following exactly what they're doing. Not that there's not something you, you know, that you can't learn from them, but yeah, that's absolutely. That's yeah. Point. So, so, so here's an example. Like I have some buddies, um, some of my best friends and, you know, their dad's hunted and their grandpa's hunted and, you know, those were their mentors and, and they, to this day, some of them hunt just the same way grandpa and dad did. And their you know, their results reflect that. And some of them are perfectly happy with that and all power to them. And other guys are not, they get frustrated that they don't, you know, maybe get on some nicer deer. And, um, you know, one thing that I missed out on that I'm, I'm very, very jealous of is my friends that do have a strong hunting culture in their family. They have a deer camp or they have a, a hunt with grandpa or a hunt with dad. And, you know, it's not about the big bucks. I mean, yes, they're, they're after big bucks. Don't get me wrong, but they'll, they'll shoot a little buck or, you know, a doe. And there's just like the whole family's there. I wish I had that. Yeah. I, that, that seems really neat to me. I would have loved to have some sort of experience like that with my dad or my grandpa. Um, but I don't. I mean, that just wasn't, that wasn't my path at all in hunting. Um, so I, when I do see that, I'm quite envious of it. They have a lot of fun and sometimes, you know, it makes me think like, man, maybe I take this a little too serious, (laughs) you know, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm not complaining at all, but, uh, I I do, I do admire, you know, uh, guys and, and families that have that, that kind of bond, you know, when it comes to hunting. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I got my dad out with me one time when I was early on. And when I started hunting, I was probably, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. And I went back in this woodlot behind my, my grandmother's house and I got up in a tree. He didn't even have a tree stand. So he's he's sitting on the ground smoking the whole time. And yep. <laughs> and I actually had I had a little buck come in. And I'd never I don't even guess I'd shot a deer at that point and uh, had a little buck come in. And I, I missed it right there in front of my dad. So <laughs> that was the only time he, only time he went with me. But yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying. I, I am envious about that that you know that family bond, family hunting bond. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we fished together and stuff growing up. But uh, just he just wasn't a hunter. I didn't have the interest in it. But that's that's, that's pretty cool. And um, I'm I'm trying to build that with my daughter. Um, so you know, I, I'm getting her in the outdoors. She's she shot a turkey. She shot three deer, and um, she's really starting to take to it. And we're starting to have that that bond and that time in the woods, and that means a hundred times more to me than any success or experience that I could have out out there. So I am trying to trying to I am trying to build that with you know with my family now, you know, and that's hopefully hopefully I'll be able to experience that for some time you know to come. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's nothing like, you know, it's one thing to kill a good buck or something yourself, but to be there when your kids, you know, kill their first deer, first Turkey, whatever the case may be, that there's uh, nothing more special than that right there for sure. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, you know, pretty much once you had killed that first good buck, was it, I mean, your success pretty consistent from that point on? Yeah, you know, it it was, but like I said, I don't want to make it come off like I was some natural killer because I wasn't. (laughs) Um, I, I, I hunted every day of the season to maybe fill, you know, one or two, uh, buck tags in Michigan. 
um, you know, maybe not every day of the season, but I'm talking like 80, 90% for sure. And um, like I said, it was just due to persistence, I think, and, and just stubbornness. And over time, yeah, I, I started, I started getting better just like anybody would, you know, with the right mindset and um, trying to eliminate mistakes. So, you know, maybe like as an example, like, you know, those first few years, yeah, I, I filled a tag or both Michigan buck tags and they were on good deer and, you know, probably some two and three-year-old deer. And then, you know, as time went on, I started shooting more three-year-old deer, three -year -old deer and occasional three-year-old deer. And it just kind of worked up that ladder. Well, you know, soon it was like, okay, I had shot my my mature buck here in Michigan and maybe one, maybe two. I didn't, I didn't always need to feel the need to shoot two. If there was two older bucks around, then that would, you know, obviously keep my attention, but that's not always that common here in Michigan. So what I started doing or finding myself is like, okay, I was out of tags or at least out of the tags that I wanted to fill. How am I going to continue hunting? Because I'm, I'm not the type that's going to, you know, shoot my deer and then sit on my duff the rest of the season. <laughs> so, so, um, that's when I started looking into traveling out of state. You know, I started doing that a, a long time ago. I've been doing, gosh, I mean, probably 20, 20 years or so of, you know, traveling, you know, and hunting whitetails in different areas. So it was, um, it was just kind of a natural progression. Obviously I, I chose states that were close by Indiana, Ohio, started hunting those because I could get to them in a shorter drive and I didn't have a ton of money at the time and eggs weren't too terribly expensive. And, you know, it just, it, it kind of started the same way. You know, there was a bit of a learning curve. I probably killed a few with just persistence. Um, and then, you know, I started getting a little better, started learning different types of terrain and habitat and having success there in Ohio. And then maybe, you know, maybe one in Indiana. And then I started venturing out into, into new places, Kentucky, uh, Missouri, Tennessee, Maryland, Iowa, Illinois, um, Nebraska, you know, and that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like, I've, I've hunted a bunch of different States. I've hunted. I can't remember. I, I can't remember. I counted it once. It might be like <laughs> 18 or 18 or 20, but, um, I just love it. You know, I love, don't get me wrong. I love hunting Michigan because it's a, it's a mental grind. It is very, very difficult to this day, the most difficult state I've hunted, not because the terrain, but it's just strictly because of the pressure and then how it changes, how the deer behave. So it makes it a really tough. It's, it's usually the most time consuming for me to, to get on a good one, but it certainly feels really good to uh, put, wrap my tag around a good Michigan buck. And that's always a goal of mine, but I have, loved just experiencing new areas, new types of terrain, you know, deer that behave a little different, um, and just learning that and just new adventures. And, you know, it started off, it's just, you know, kind of, kind of easy stuff. You know, you rent a hotel room and, you know, hunt a piece of public or you knock on some doors, you hunt a little piece of private land or whatever, and, you know, not that big a deal. And then now it's, it's kind of morphed into like, more, you know, like kind of like backcountry stuff and, you know, tent camping and, and, um, you know, even some of the Western big game. So, um, I just love new challenges. Like I said, my goal is not to fill my wall with a bunch of big deer. If that, if that was my goal, 
what I would do is I would save all this money I'm spending driving different places and buying tags. And I would get a, I would get a really good lease in Ohio, probably Illinois. And then I'd draw my Iowa tag when I could. And I would hunt those specific states just for giant deer. But that's, that's not my goal. You know, I, I love big bucks just as much as anyone, but the score doesn't mean, you know, much to me at all, but the experience does. I want that. I just want that new experience and that new challenge where I have a challenge, a new challenge in front of me and I have to figure out a way to, you know, to get it done. Um, and because I do what I do at the school, I'm limited on time. I don't get vacation time. I'm, I'm usually limited to those weekends. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I call in sick here, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> um, you so yeah. So, you know, I, I'll work through the flu, you know, during, during outside of hunting season, but when it's hunting season and I'm healthy, I'm, I'm calling in sick here and there on right, Friday or Monday. So, you know, I do, I do stretch it out, you know, two to four days, you know, is usually my norm. That doesn't, that's not to say I might not go back, you know, if I don't, if I don't fill my tag, but two to four days is usually kind of that window. And, and I try to set my standards and expectations accordingly. You know, I don't have a week to 10 days. So yeah, that's just kind of, that's kind of how it, it's all went down. So um, that's kind of my progression there. All right. Well, let, let's dive into that a little bit as far as your, your process, I guess, of um, picking these out of state trips. Now I know you said initially you were, you were picking the states that were just, you know, closest to you, the states you could get to easily. Um, how did you go about, I guess, pinpointing specific areas within those states? And then, you know, how, how do you kind of pick the states you want to hit now these days? Yeah, so it, it's it, it's kind of changed a little bit. So back in the day, I would study the the record books. So like Ohio, for an example, has a, you know, like a, a Ohio big buck registry, or I can't remember the name of it, but it's got, it's got their own set of record bucks and it, it breaks down, you know, the bucks that were killed county by county has a score. And, you know, I would really look at those and I'd color code and everything, you know, all these different counties. And I would try to choose, I would try to choose counties that were really good, but weren't the best. Um, and that's kind of where I started. And then I would look at available public land in there. Um, one thing I, I, I used to always do, I still do often is I would sometimes, uh, make a trip down there and just knock on some doors. Back when I started, I could get permission much easier than now. Now it's like, man, it's, it's really, really tough. And you know, it's, it's just more and more, there was always some public land. Now it's just more and more kind of you know, that's the majority of it. Um, it seems like when I travel and that's totally fine. Um, I don't look at them really any different cause it's not like I ever, it's not like I ever had any like primo private land. It was always like, yeah, you can hunt, but this guy hunts and the neighbor hunts and this, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it kind of felt like public land anyway, but that's kind of how I would narrow it down. I'd pick those counties and then I would just go. Sometimes it would just be think like, okay, I want to hunt a new state. Who, who do I know? Do I know anybody in Kentucky? Oh yeah, I know, you know, so-and-so my, aunt, you know, my, my cousin lives there or, you know, what my buddy from college or something. So I might call just because I have a place to stay. Um, I, I hunt a place, uh, in, in Maryland and I have a buddy that lives there. And the only reason I go there is there's a lot of deer and I have a place to stay and I like visiting my friend and, um, you know, it's turned into one of my favorite hunts. You know, it's a, 
It's way different than anything I've ever experienced. It's more like suburban hunting. So it's different. But again, I'm all about the experience. I like new experiences and that's new and kind of foreign to me. So that's been kind of cool to try to figure that out. But that's the way it started was with like, I really like dissected the counties. Uh, even when I was started going to Iowa, I did the same thing. I got in the Iowa record books and started looking where all these, the, the biggest high scoring deer were coming from. And I tried to stay away from the most popular areas and try to pick those ones that were like down the list a little, like maybe towards the upper third, but not at the top. Cause I just made sense to me that, you know, maybe those areas wouldn't be as popular. Now that's kind of all changed. Like now I don't really look at the record books at all. I feel like I've been able to get on deer that I'm happy with just about, just about anywhere I go. I mean, of course I'm, uh, I'm not targeting like an area that, you know, that's known to be like terrible. Right. Um, but you know, I might go, I might go to Western Kentucky, but I don't look at the county record books and see which counties. I, I just know Western Kentucky in general has some nice deer. And, you know, I think if you, if you find the right habitat and the right, you know, piece of public that maybe has some difficult access you know, maybe away from some cities. So there's a couple of things that I, that I look for, you know, a, a, a decent drive away from some of the bigger towns, difficult access, you know, limited access. Uh, and, you know, I can usually, you know, have turn out a, a decent hunt doing that. So it's kind of changed. Um, and, and now the, what I pick now, it's like, I want, I want new terrain and I want new like habitat. So I, I, I never got a chance to hunt a lot of hill country growing up, obviously here in Michigan. So I was kind of drawn to those big rugged hills, you know, in Southern Ohio, and Kentucky, and even in some of the spots I hunted in Iowa, very hilly. And it was really, you know, there was a learning curve there trying to figure that out, but that was something I wanted to do. I wanted that new experience. I didn't feel like I was very good in the hills and I feel like I've learned a lot and I've become much better. So so now it's like, I, I already had a lot of experience with like marshes and swamps and farm. So now it's like a lot of kind of the Western Plains have, have my eye now. You know, I'm really, I'm really enjoying that more open country whitetail. And even some of the stuff I hunt like in Northern Ohio is, is flat, open country with like tiny woodlots. You know, you might have a, you might have a two or three mile radius, you know, and there might be three woodlots in there you know, ranging from two acres to five acres. And it's just flat pancake, maybe a couple hedgerows, just nothing but bean and corns and uh, beans and corn. And, and, and uh, man, it's challenging. You know, there's not a lot of deer around and it's wide open and they can see you coming from a mile away. So I, I'm really, right now, I seem to be, I, I seem to be liking two different things, big woods, hill country, or the complete opposite, which is like kind of the, the Western plains or that more open ground. So now I'm just more, I'm more going towards the experience that I want. And, and truth be told, I know it's, you know, going to be geared more towards whitetail, but I've, I'm really diving in deep now with like some of the Western big game with mule deer and elk. And those are, those are kind of climbing up the list and, and taking some priority there just because, you know, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I'm, I don't know. I, I hopefully got a lot of hunting seasons left, but I waited a long time to do some of the Western big game. And I wish I wouldn't have. 
So I'm trying to play catch up there. So um, I'm making I'm making those a priority right now. Yeah, I understand. I'm I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to turn 48 here in a couple of days, and I've just started building preference points for elk. So I still want to. Yeah. Hopefully, I can stay in shape to to get out there, or, or get in better shape to get out there and and chase an yeah. elk or two before before I get too old. That's right. Yep. But uh, are any of these spots? Do you tend to to go back to year after year? You know, ones where you've had success, and then just add some new ones to it, or, or do you pretty much try to hit new spots? every year yeah kind of a mix so i definitely i definitely go back to some areas that i've been to before either because they're just really good or i feel like i'm still learning the area maybe like i said that place in maryland i you know i got a buddy there and i I really enjoy that hunt because we're hunting you know not not really together but we're we're both hunting at the same time and, and kind of like a little mini hunting camp, sort of. So yeah, I definitely do that. But I've also like completely abandoned some of those places. So there's, you know, there's a spot in Kentucky that I had killed a couple nice deer off of. And it's a, it's an early season hot spot. I could, I could go back there because I've done it pretty much every fall for the opener. And there's a pretty good bachelor group of bucks, you know, in this little area. Um, It's something that, I don't, I'm not going to say it's guaranteed, but I'm I'm pretty confident there's going to be, uh, if not one, multiple, you know, multiple deer I'd be happy with in that group. But I, I did it for several years and I just, I don't know, I haven't went back. I just, I only got so much time. And like I said, I, I want to experience new things. So some of the things I go back to and then usually those kind of run their course or I just get bored with it or I just want to try something new. So the last few years I've been going more and more. I've been, I've been leaving the Midwest more and heading more West. So I, you know, I hunted Iowa this year, Nebraska is a a state that I'm, I'm really liking. I've hunted that the last two years. So I'm trying to experience a little more of, of that stuff now, which is all brand new to me. So there's, there's always a mix, you know, but I always, part of the reason I've, I'm able to have some of the success I have is because I've hunted so many of these different states and areas that it's given me a lot of experience in different types of terrain and habitat. And feel, you know, it, it's given me a lot of confidence to go just about anywhere and I can get on good deer, you know, usually in a, a fairly short time frame. Not always, but um, like I said, I'm not not like I'm going out there holding out for 180s. You know what I mean? I'm not, but but I'm typically looking for you know a, a good buck. Uh, you know, I like to shoot big deer and old deer, and uh, you know sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I settle a little bit. Sometimes uh, I end up shooting you know the biggest buck I see of the trip. So it's it's all it's all good with me. Um, you know, I just enjoy it all. So. Now I got to ask, have, have you ever not returned to a place where you didn't have success? Cause you strike me as the type of guy that, that, you know, don't like to, to go out defeated. <laughs> so uh, have I went back to a place I, I haven't had success. H- have you not gone by? Have, have you, have you gone to a place and didn't have success and just said, well, forget it. I'm not going back there. Oh no. No. So, so here's a good example. Um, I went to Nevada this year. Now this wasn't whitetail. It was mule deer. 
um, backcountry hunt. And it was an early season mule deer, just brutal. Um, it was, it was in some mountains there that are very, very steep, very rugged, rocky cliff. And the, the, you can imagine it's an, it's an August hunt and, uh, the heat in Nevada is, is out of this world and it's just sunny all the time. It was, a, I was out there nine days. Granted, this took place in the summer, so it was before my work started. It was perfect for my schedule. One of the very few trips where I could go for an extended amount of time. But that hunt was so difficult, um, not only physically, which I was prepared for, but it was mentally tough because we weren't finding hardly any deer. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you're up there, you're far from home, you know, it's expensive tag. The, the weather's brutal. You got camp and food and everything on your back. You know, you're living out there and, and it's like, we're not even into any deer. And it was just kicking my butt, but I loved it. And I ended up getting on a, a, a very, very large world-class type mule deer. On, I don't know, on day five or so. I went in on a stalk and the wind swirled and got me. And I ended up uh, locating that same mule deer the very last day of the hunt. In fact, it was the last morning and we had to catch a flight that afternoon. Oh man. So long story short is I could go on forever about this deer. That's, it's going to, you know, haunt me forever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it just was shaping up to be you know, the storybook ending, you know, all the hard work. And I, I put 110% into this hunt. Um, I left it all out there. Um, so I, I do feel good about saying that and being able to do that. Um, but it just felt like, man, all this hard work is going to pay off on the buck of my dreams. And I had this like epic stalk. I got into 24 yards of this deer and then just made a, a, just made a dumb mistake, moved at the wrong time, you know, without being at full draw. And I got to full draw on this deer and I had my pin, you know, behind the shoulder. And I, I shoot kind of like a back tension, like pull, 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 pull. And, uh, as I'm pulling through the shot like that, he, he takes off and, uh, it was literally, you know, I had to leave within that hour to drive to the airport as a flight home. And, uh, man, you talk about <laughs> defeated. Mm-hmm. I beat myself up about that because I know better. Um, I've, I've shot mule deer before and I know, I know how they act. Uh, I know what you can get away with, you know, as far as drawing your bow and, and how they react. And I just, I just lost focus there for a split second and did something that was really dumb. And it cost me a buck of a lifetime in an area where they're not supposed to be. This was a, a, a pretty, you know, kind of like general season type hunt. It's not a trophy hunt. It's an opportunity hunt. You know, man, I'll, all I can think about is going back there and redeeming <laughs> myself and I'm, I'm going to, I don't care if I have to go back 10 times, I'm going to go back and I'm going to kill a big deer there. So it's uh you're absolutely right. I will. I don't like being defeated. <laughs> I sometimes do, but I don't like it. And uh, I do like to go back and, and somehow, somehow figure it out and have success. So I'm, I'm going to be heading back to Nevada. Good deal. I hope you have a a good redemption story to tell then this fall. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> okay, let's let's kind of dive into, I guess your your tactics now on, on approaching a a new piece of property. So you've uh, you know you've picked out what state you want to go to, uh, maybe even the the particular track of public land. Where do you start 
from that point? Are, are you a map scouter or how do you prepare for the hunt? So, yes, I'm a huge map scouter. Um, I use, you know, all the common ones, Google Earth, Onyx, uh, CalTopo is one that I really like. But, you know, before I answer this question, I got, I, I, I've been asked this question before and it's like, it, it really depends on the context of this hunt. You know, what I, if you were going to ask me about um, an early season Kentucky hunt for the opener, my answer is going to be very different than a rut hunt in Iowa um, and how I prepare, what I look for. So maybe I'll just use those two as an example. Okay. Yeah. So this is ideal. This this is, this is would, would be, if everything is ideal, how I would love to approach this. And, and the way I do most of the time, sometimes I can't for, you know, whatever reason, other stuff going on, but more times than not, this is how I would approach an, or an early season Kentucky hunt. Which, I wouldn't even buy. Oh, go which, ahead. I was just going to say, it's a perfect example, by the way, because I, I have an early season Kentucky bow hunt plan this, this fall. So <laughs> this will work out nicely. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, obviously, um, you know, I'm, I'm, if it's, if it's early season, I'm going to gravitate towards an area. I tend to gravitate towards areas that are kind of more broken up in country, meaning, um, there can be a mix of fields, river bottom or, or woods, something that something where I can utilize my glass. Okay. So if it's early season, I'm probably not going to go down. In fact, I know I won't go down and post-season scout like before. So I'm not going to go down in February or March and scout for an early season hunt in Kentucky. I'm just not going to do it because I don't, I don't think I can find too much valuable information for a September 1st or September 4th, whenever that opener is during that time. So what I'll do is I will plan to leave early before that hunt and give myself a good two or three days to, to scout. And what I kind of, what I look for is, is like I said, that broken up country and I'm going to look for areas that I think are going to be far enough away from access hidden from roads, like back, you know, low spots in fields back away from the access that are, you know, difficult, uh, more difficult to get to, or you can't see from a road. And I'm going to locate a few of those that look like they're adjacent to good bedding. So if it's like, uh, you know, like a river bottom, I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards river bottoms because I just really like them. Um, they tend to hold a lot of deer and I'm just kind of familiar with how deer utilize them and embed in them. Um, so I'll look for those spots that are difficult to see, difficult to access that are adjacent to stuff that looks like good bedding. So I'm looking for like in a river bottom look or a creek bottom, I'm looking for the river bends, like the little oxbows and the little bends. Those are what typically holds deer. If there's some, you know, wetland or something kind of next to that, um, you know, it's, then it's, I kind of revert back to what I look for, like in any type of like swamp or marsh, you know, little islands, points, um, anything that's kind of some structure or some edge is, you know, very, very probable uh, bedding. Like I said earlier, I'm probably going to probably going to be picking an area that's known to have good deer. And, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't go to like the worst part of Kentucky. I'd probably pick something like Western or central or, you know, something like that. So I, I would pick several of those spots out 
And then I would show up two to three days before the hunt and I would utilize my glass every morning and every evening trying to overlook those spots. So obviously for the opener, I'm going to, I'm probably going to be focused on some sort of green like beans or alfalfa, um, something like that. That time Kentucky's a very unique one in that their season opens up early enough where the bucks are bachelored up. They're usually in velvet. They're usually hitting those fields. They're in there, you know, after daylight, you know, in the mornings and, and well before dark in the evening. So that's how I've been able to have find success on Kentucky is, is doing the bulk of my scouting days leading up to my hunt. If I just went there like the night before my hunt and woke up and then just started hunting, man, I just feel terribly unprepared. And I don't think my success would be great, you know, unless I had some sort of, you know, maybe some trail cam data. I know a lot of guys use cell cameras and stuff now. I mean, maybe, maybe if you had something like that, you know, you might be able to capitalize, but I don't really utilize that stuff too much. So that, that would be my approach for an early season Kentucky hunt. Now, if you're talking a rut hunt, now it's completely different. So I'm going to, I'm going to refer to my, my Iowa rut hunt this year, which I drew with the Iowa tag, you know, it was going to be a rut hunt, you know, in that November timeframe, most likely maybe late October, if we got some good weather, but I made multiple trips down there postseason in the early spring before spring green up to do my scouting. And the reason I like to go then before any green up comes is just because you can visually see all the sign that was laid left, you know, left down from all the deer and, and all the rutting activity. So rubs and scrapes and deer trails, everything is, is very, very uh, visible and you can put things together much easily rather than, you know, if I would have went down in maybe May or June when things are like starting to get really green and thick, it's like you, you, you'd miss half of it at least, but you can really find, you can fine tune and figure out like, where the doe bedding is, where buck bedding is, you know, on a certain piece, where are, what's the majority of travel direction with all these trails? Like how do they move through the property? What are the most beat down trails? Where do, where are there certain spots in this property where a lot of trails converge like a travel hub? Um, those are some of the things I'm looking for. So if I, if my, if my hunt's going to be geared more towards the rut, there's a few things that I like to look for. I like to look for travel hubs. So that could look like, say you're in some like, you know, you're in some hill country, some gentle hill country where um, you got some you got some ridges around, and then there's these secondary ridges, there's these secondary points that all kind of dump down into a bottom. I like those spots where there's like several of those pointed down, like dumping down at the bottom into the same general area. Okay, so that creates a uh, creates a travel hub. Like deer like to travel those points kind of going from ridge to ridge. They'll go down and then up. Um, so if you get, if you can find those spots where all of those dump down to the same general area, that's a great spot to be during the rut because it's a travel hub. It's connecting like, think of it in terms of like m- multiple trails all coming to one point, you know? And then also it's a thermal hub where, you know, in the evenings sent from all these ridges, these, you know, these ridge points are falling down the landscape and pooling down in that area. It's, it's a, whenever you have a thermal hub, it, it draws in bucks during the rut because they can scent check multiple areas from one spot. 
So not only do you have a travel hub, but you have a thermal hub and they're overlapping each other. So that just makes that a really, really good rut spot. So th- that's, that's one of the spots I'm looking for. If you find, you know, going in the spring there, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find dough bedding. One of my favorite spots is, is just finding dough bedding, like, you know, good dough bedding and then finding that, that downwind side of that. Often you'll find some sign like on the downwind side. But obviously, wind changes, so it, it can depend. But it's more on usually on that predominantly downwind side for that time of year, like during the rut. So it's you know a lot of west, northwest. You know, could be like you know on that more on that southern side, maybe that that southeastern side. You'll find some sign, but th- that's a great spot to be during the rut. Um, and obviously, depending on the type of terrain you're in, if you can somehow get in between uh, dough, you know, big bedding areas, dough bedding areas. You know, maybe if there's something like terrain-wise or cover-wise that pinches down like a funnel in between those areas, another great place to be. So th- that's kind of what I'm looking for. I don't need a ton of sign necessarily on, you know, some of those spots that I s- said specifically. There, there should be some sign there. I don't need a ton. But what I was looking for when I go down in the spring, the early spring, is I'm looking for pieces of property that, one, look like they get not a, maybe not a little less hunting pressure. Um, looks like they got a, a good population of mature deer. So I am looking for overall just big buck sign, you know, tracks, rubs, you know, during that time of year, you might, you might turn up a shed or two. That's not uncommon, but I'm really trying to put all the pieces together because this is a big tag. It's my, it's my Iowa tag that I've waited four years for. I'm going to, I'm going to scout my butt off, uh, to, to really narrow down maybe one or two public pieces that I want to focus on. So just for that, that one Iowa hunt, I went down there four different times over the last four years, scouted pretty much every piece of public in my zone and narrowed it down to two. And those two I chose because I could get to some, some spots that were, you know, difficult to access, you know, so they had some, some access difficulties. The pressure appeared to be a little lower. Some of my favorite pieces terrain-wise, I didn't even hunt because there was hunter sign everywhere. And I just don't want to deal with that. You know, there's, it's going to be there to a certain extent, but I wanted to minimize that, obviously. And then um, I'm looking for areas that have that have good good deer sign in general. Like, you know, there's quite a few deer, you, you know, utilizing this means there's going to be a lot of does, which during the rut in Iowa, you're going to have your bucks. And then if it had buck bedding on it, that's a plus, you know, any type of uh, good buck sign, the, the more the merrier, because like what that tells me is like, if I find good sign, that's close to like, if I find a buck bed and then there's sign around it, big rubs and stuff like, okay, there, there's actually a spot where a buck lives. He spends a lot of time here bedding. I'm going to really pick that apart and try to figure that out because that's, that's actually a, um, a possible hunt that could be really effective in that kind of like late October timeframe that I mentioned. Now, as you, as you get into more November, I think those lose value a little bit, not completely though, because I do think some of the, the more mature bucks still kind of relate to bedding. And then they just, they just go out and they, you know, they, they get that first hot doe, the, the biggest and oldest bucks. They don't spend a lot of time cruising and searching because they don't have to. So that, that's a very valuable piece. But what I'm looking for too is just overall, just general big buck sign. 
you know, scrapes, rubs, that tells me that, hey, there's, there's some good, good bucks in here and they're getting fired up because there's good does, there's good does in here. There was some good rutting activity in this area. So those are some of the things I'm looking for. And I basically, I found several pieces of public that had a ton of potential, but I narrowed it down to two. And um, I went down there because I had some great weather and I found this really cool, like primary scrape spot. It was, it's a very unique, I'll try to make sense of this spot, why I picked this. Sorry, I know I'm rambling here. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. okay, so I found this, uh, there's this, think of to the, to the north, there's a giant block of timber and this is like dark, thick, nasty timber, not like mature open hardwoods, like thick cedar, you know, some down trees, just, just really good bedding habitat. I couldn't hunt that. That was a piece of private. And then, so what I, what I did mention earlier is I like the downwind side of that during the rut. So obviously that caught my eye. I know typically that time of the year, the, the, the wind is going to be somewhere out of the West, Northwest or North, you know, typically. Um, so I'm, I'm scouting that edge, that Southern edge. And as I'm scouting that Southern edge of that bedding area, that downwind side, I find this huge primary scrape and I'm like, wow, this thing was just torn up. So now I got two things going for me. I got the downwind side and I got a good primary scrape there. That's going to kind of like concentrate movement to that one spot. But that wasn't it. That wasn't all that I had going for me on that, that, that piece. So when I really looked, I zoomed way out on the maps, driving around. I, it, it, it materialized like, okay, here's bedding. And then there's these three finger draws that came out of the bedding and one the primary scrape was in one of them. So imagine these, imagine the piece that I was hunting had like open field on the tops and then they dumped down into these little draws that were just thick, nasty timber. And those ran North and South headed, you know, to the South where a bunch of ag was to the South. So now I have downwind of bedding, downwind side of bedding. I have a, a huge primary scrape there and I have the travel routes from bedding to feeding and they all overlap each other with a north wind. So, so when I have a north wind, I got the downwind side of doe bedding. I already got that primary scrape there that sweetens the pot. But, but now I didn't even think about it at the time until like I really zoomed out on the map. And like I said, I drove around and found the food sources. Those are travel routes from the main bedding in the whole area to the main food in the whole area. And it just happened to be through, you know, the piece of public house hunting. <laughs> So, so was that, that's what I look for in the rut. I look for things that overlap, things that are good during the rut that overlap with each other. And that, that makes a good spot into a great spot and a great spot into like a very, very high percentage spot. So I sat there a couple times late October and I had some decent bucks, some younger bucks that I just, you know, in Michigan, I would have been happy with, but not in Iowa. And then my hunt was cut short. I had to get back to work. So I only had a couple days, but my plan was to come back in November. And, um, I came back in November. It was November the 6th. I had just killed a big Ohio buck, my target buck in Ohio on the 4th, took care of it the next day. And then I went to Iowa and I hunted that spot down, you know, I was downwind of that doe bedding off to the side of that primary scrape and covering that, that bed to feed pattern that the does were really using. And I had a really big buck, probably like 
probably like 150 class, if I had to guess, you know, clean 10, fully mature, fully mature deer do exactly what I thought, what I was set up for, but I was just, uh, I was just off of the trail he used. So basically he got downwind of me, but what he was doing was he was cruising that downwind side of the doe bedding. So he's getting that whiff of the bed, the, uh, the, you know, that big chunk of bedding area, but then he was perpendicularly crossing those travel routes. So he's scent checking each one of those. So he's, so he's going, coming, he's going east to west or west to he's east. Going, he's going east to west and okay. he's, he's killing two birds with one stone. He's yeah. checking that doe bedding and he's checking the, the travel routes to see if any does had come through. So I was, my setup was sound, but I was hugging the bedding and he was, he was, he was downwind of me more than I thought he would be. And it kind of surprised me because he wasn't really hugging the bedding really, really tight. But anyway, he ended up getting downwind of me and busting me. And I was like, oh man, like, you know, why was he way down there? Like, you know, <laughs> everything that I know and that I've seen, they should be hugging this edge. You know, they like the edge. Well, he didn't, you know, he was, he was, you know, just out of range and, and got my win. So I was sitting there thinking like, gosh, what do I do? Do I move? No, I feel, I feel real confident in this spot. And it wasn't 15 minutes later, I start hearing another deer come from the opposite direction, but in that same perpendicular travel route. Again, downwind side of bedding, you know, perpendicular uh, bisecting those travel routes, nose to the ground, scent checking those. Because the, it was a major, there was three major, major travel routes from bed to feed right there. And I hear that, you know, the leaves crunching and I see a deer. And at first I don't see a rack and I pick the binoculars up and I look and it's, it's like this really cool rack and I just see points everywhere. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that one's good enough. <laughs> you know? So I wasn't really sure what he was, but I just saw a rack like I had never seen before. Not necessarily the biggest frame, but it was like, there were just points everywhere. And, um, he's on that same path as that other deer, except he's coming from the opposite direction. So again, he's about to get downwind to me. But for whatever reason, he's, you know, he's probably 30 yards from getting straight downwind of me and he starts angling up towards my tree. So he's really cutting the edge of like almost catching my wind, but he's also closing the distance. And I come to full draw and he comes and ends up like point Blake range, right? Basically right under my tree. Mm. And, uh, I let him have it, but it ended up being just this really cool buck. He he has 20 scorable points. And uh, just a really neat, non-typical deer. One of the coolest deer I've ever shot. And uh, just a cool hunt. But that, but that just goes to show like that, that postseason scouting or that, uh, you know, that, that early spring scouting can be so valuable if you're talking about a rut hunt. And the fact that I went down there multiple times, I narrowed down, you know, 15 different public pieces to two. And on those two pieces, I probably had five spots that I felt like these are really, really high percent spots. And that's what I look for. And that's why, that's why I tend to have, I would say, you know, pretty good success on, on short-term hunts is because those are the types of spots I look for. Now that's not to say there weren't 10 other spots that were good, but you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for the best of the best for that time, for that time frame of the season. And, And that's, that's when we had narrowed down to those, you know, four or five spots. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, are you the the first time you're stepping on these properties, do you already have 
you, you've you said you've you know you've map scouted. Do you have several specific spots that, and you're heading to those to scout those, or is it more just I want to scout this general area and you get in there and and walk the whole thing? Or yeah, so it, it kind of depends on the size. So this this particular piece that I was hunting is a was a piece of walking ground. It was not that large. It was um, under 400 acres, and a lot of it, the majority of it, was wide open. So I didn't even need to, uh, didn't even need to scout it. But what I, what caught my eye about that spot, um, was that it was adjacent to a very, very large chunk of cover. And when you zoom way out, you know, on Google earth, that, that chunk of cover was so substantial. It was the biggest chunk of cover, like that you can see for miles and miles and miles. There's plenty of cover around, but like that piece was huge. So I knew there was going to be a good number of deer in the area. So then I looked in that, yeah, I could see those fingers kind of coming out of that bedding area and leading across. So I was like, okay, well, there's some, there's a, you know, three or four good funnels right there from bed to feed. Um, you know, that's always a good spot during the rut too. So it just kind of caught my eye. Um, and then when I went in there and scouted, ironically, almost none, no big buck sign. I don't think I found a scrape. <laughs> I don't think I found a rub. Um, the, uh, I'm sorry. The only scrape I found was that primary scrape in that one finger. There were none on the field edge that I, that I, nothing to speak of, you know, nothing like, you know, you'd think Iowa, like they, they'd be, you know, shredded, you know, all along the field edges. They weren't. And, and what did that tell me? That tells me oh, Buck's not living here. You know, this is, this is going to be a rut spot. This is not a spot I would hunt October 1st. This isn't a spot I would hunt, you know, October 10th, October 15th, but there's this, there's this primary scraping here that's torn up. That's going to, you know, for whatever reason, probably because it's a travel hub and uh, often in a travel, a travel hub, there will be a primary scrape, whether you're in hill country where all those points don't down into the same area. A lot of times there's a big, there's a big primary scrape down there. And all it is, it's like, it's an area, uh, it's a hub of travel where a lot of things come together. And the bucks, they just, that's how they communicate. You know, that's how a lot of the deer communicate. If you put like a, a camera on those, you'll get those, you'll get bucks, you know, a bunch of different ones too. So it's a great place to be. And then, you know, the fact that it was downwind side, that primary scrape and those, you know, those travel routes, it just was like, you know, one plus one plus one, you know, equals three, you know. And really it was one plus one plus one equals five because <laughs> all those things are so valuable, right. you know, during the rut. Um, now, if you're talking, let's talk about uh, one of the other spots I, I scouted down there, which was a big woods hill country. You know, that's a little different. So what, what I would do down there is I would pick, I like to focus on ridges that have a lot of terrain variances as opposed to like, a long skinny ridge with like, you know, one or two points. I'm looking for ridges that have multiple secondary points coming off of it. Kind of like think of like a spider, you know, like you got the main ridge and then you got these points coming off, you know, all over the place, you know, lots of different points and benches and, and things like that. Lots of, I call them like dynamic ridges. They just got a lot going on. Yeah. And what, what that is, you know, that's going to just hold more deer. It's got more possible bedding areas for does and bucks. So it's just going to have more deer activity. So that's kind of where I start, like a rough start. If I'm, if I'm looking at something that's more 
you know, you know, big woods, hill country. And that could probably go for any type of terrain. Like the more bedding opportunity, probably the better it's going to be, especially if you're talking about a rut hunt. But that's what I look for. I look for those ridges. And then what I'm looking for, for a rut hunt in that type of setting, I'm looking for that leeward size. So the, the majority of your bedding and the majority of your buck cruising during the rut will be on that leeward side. So if you got a ridge that's running, you know, from west to east, and say you got a north wind, your best chance at catching a cruising buck is going to be on that southern side of that ridge, that leeward side where he can catch the, the wind coming over the top from the north and those thermals coming up from the bottom. You know, as, as the light, the bottom warms up, those thermals are going to come up and they can, he can cruise that side and get sent from the bottom and the top. So again, it's just, you're putting yourself in a position where the odds are in your favor for a mature buck to be searching for and traveling through like w- what he's looking for at that time of year. And then the, the leeward side also, like if you're talking about a ridge with that northern wind, that's going to be where the majority of the bedding is going to be too because they like to bed on those secondary points, does and bucks like to bed on those secondary points facing downhill with the wind coming over their back. So you're, again, you're just putting a lot of different factors in your favor. And you're also playing into the fact that it's the rut. Bucks are going to be on their feet more. So you're, you're putting yourself on the side of the ridge where the bedding is, you know, the most likely bedding is and where the bucks are going to be cruising. So again, you're just looking for those funnels in that, on that side, which, you know, a lot of times is like, could be a, you know, a saddle, a bench, a good bench on that side. Or sometimes it's a really steep cut, a really steep ravine coming up from the bottom. And then it comes to a head, usually like halfway or three quarters up that ridge. And the deer are forced to go up and around the top of that. Not at the top of the ridge, but just up and around the top of that, that ditch, that ravine, that drainage. Essentially what it is, it's just a drainage. So the steeper, the more nasty, the better because they have to go up and over the head of that. And that's right. One of the a great spot to be right there. If you're, if it's ahead of a drainage that's in between two big pockets of dough bedding, great place to be a funnel between dough bedding. You know, if it's a, if it's a bench that connects, you know, some, some good bedding come over, over here and some good bedding over here or, or a really dynamic ridge system over here to the West. And then over to the east, you, again, you got another ridge that kind of spiders off into all these different points. They're both going to hold deer. And then you're trying to set somewhere in between there that funnels deer through where it gives you the, the best, you know, the best chance of success. So that's, that's how I would tackle the rut. I'm, I'm banking on bucks being on their feet, searching, and I'm in an unfamiliar area. So I'm not necessarily after a particular buck. I'm usually after a good buck. Now, I will say, <laughs> if you're a local guy and this is your home turf and you're after the big, you know, 180 inch 12 that you've been after for a few years, I don't know if those spots are the best for that particular buck. Because a lot of times, those, like I said earlier, those big older bucks will stay relating to their home core bedding areas a lot longer than, say, your typical three, four even five-year-old bucks and that those, some of those big oldest mature bucks, they stay put and they stay in their bedding areas. That's why I said, if you can, if you can find that buck bedding area, it's, it's a big, 
mature, you know, the, the biggest, maturest buck in the area, a lot of times he'll just hang there for much longer time. And then as soon as that first doe comes in, it's like, boom, he just takes her. He keeps tabs on it, keeps tabs on it at night, but he's not out cruising. He's not out acting, acting dumb and, and doing some of these things that these, some of these younger bucks are doing. He's laying low and that first buck, I'm sorry, that first doe that comes into heat, boom, he just takes her. And that's why sometimes you'll see, like, I'm sure you've seen it. I see it all the time. You're not really seeing any chasing going on. And then all of a sudden it's like October 31st or November 2nd, you see this giant buck bedded out in, in the field with a doe. And you're like, what in the world? <laughs> like he's, he's already locked down with her. It's because he was just, he was just laying low, living in, you know, living in his core area, scent checking and, and keeping tabs at night. And that first doe that came in, he just takes her. He doesn't have to chase her down. You know, he doesn't have to, you know, fend off all these other bucks. He's the most mature buck in the area. So there's a lot of times where if you're after a particular old buck, some of these funnels and travel routes may not be, may not be your best bet, but you have to have that knowledge of that buck and, you know, know his habits and where he beds and some of his tendencies. But when I'm on, you know, when I'm going on these out of state hunts, I don't, I don't have that knowledge. So I'm not usually after a particular buck. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, cause you know, you hear a lot of, a lot of people talk about buck beds and you hear that, that term thrown around a lot. What, what does a buck bed look like? I mean, have you found any consistencies to what, where these bucks are bedding and, and kind of what that, that bed will look like and how, how some uh, hunter can discern that from say a doe bedding area? Yeah. So it, it depends on the terrain. Buck beds are usually in typically in some of the more remote places away from human activity. It seems like they're either, it seems like they're either, either like remote, far from access, far from human activity, or a lot of times they're bedded in a way where it's, they can actually monitor human activity. And often it's like, you know, close to access, but they have a vis- some visual advantage and they're off to the side where most of the people don't access. So over, think overlooked or remote. Those, those are the two things that I would probably steer somebody in, in trying to find like mature buck bedding. Overlooked where they can monitor or, or remote far from, you know, the most human activity. What can they look like? Most of the time, like when I find a buck bed, it's usually a single bed or it's a, it's a series of beds in a small area. But there usually is something in there that would indicate, obviously, it's a buck. If there's trees in there that can be rubbed, you, you more than likely you're going to find some rubs, some probably some from multiple years. You can see sometimes the droppings. You know, bucks tend to have like that big clumped up, like especially bigger bucks, almost like top can size, you know, birds. You'll find those kind of around the bedding where those are more pellets. The size of the bed is something I'm looking for. I mean, when you see a big mature buck bed, it's, it's very clear that it's not a, a doe, you know, doe, those tend to bed in groups. So you'll find multiple, multiple beds, usually kind of facing each other or different directions, you know, of various sizes, you know, you got your big doe and your medium doe and your fawns and stuff. So those are usually easy to pick out. Most of the time when I find a big buck bed, it's either one like substantial 
uh, buck bed. It usually has some sort of like perimeter back cover, you know, some sort of horizontal cover. It could be a, a rock. It could be a, 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 a tipped over tree. It could be like an overhanging tree. It could be a bush. Um, something at the back that kind of hides the back. Sometimes it has overhead cover. But what, what, what you usually see is this, this big, giant, substantial bed. And if it's the only one there, a lot of times if it's well used, you'll notice that it's like worn down either to the dirt or sometimes um, I picked this up from a, another hunter as a really good tip. It's like if it's like in the, a wooded setting, you can you know find hair in the bed. And then if you pick up the leaves and like take layers off the leaves, you'll find hair under multiple layers indicating that that buck is there often, not just recently. So there'll be hairs under the layers of leaves. That's a pretty good tip. But then there's also, sometimes they don't bed in just one specific spot. Sometimes it's a little, it's an area and they'll move around depending on wind direction. So for instance, like um, uh, one of the marshes I hunt here in Michigan, there's uh, an island out, you know, far away from access. Now this is one of those spots that I would consider remote. Difficult to get to, it's a long walk and you got to walk through water, most likely at at the very least uh, hip waders out through this marsh. And then there's this remote island out there. And when you go out to that island, there's like five or six beds on it. It's probably the size of maybe like a, maybe like a 12 to 1500 foot square home. You know what I mean? Like to give you a kind of an idea, multiple beds on that. But when you really, really look at it, there's rubs from multiple years. There's rubs from this year. There's rubs from last year. There's rubs, you know, that are a couple of years old. There's multiple beds. They're all the same size and they're all big. That tells me that's a, that's one buck bedded there and he's moving around depending on the wind direction. So if the wind's out of the north, he's bedding more on that southern side of that, on that uh, southern side of the, the island where he can bed on that edge. They usually like to be on some sort of, you know, near or on some sort of edge with some sort of back cover facing out downwind. So like in this case, he's kind of facing out into the, to the marsh a little bit and it's cattails, but it's not like, not cattails necessarily, you know, way over your head. They're kind of broken down. You can kind of see out there if you, you know, if there was a human coming from downwind, you know, he'd spot it out there 50 yards and then he could be gone like that. Those are a couple of examples. Like I mentioned in the hill country, they like that leeward side on those secondary points. And it's not as sometimes it's not those big points that you see on the on a uh, topographical map like if you're looking at that ridge that runs west to east and you've got a north wind and then there's these points that go pointing out to the south like those are going to be the probable bedding spots but when you go look at those the ones that stand out on the topographical map those big points they're not always on that sometimes they're on the little knob that's off to the side but it's still off that point or just a little knob on that leeward side and, and those tend to be some of the spots where I find, you know, some of the better buck beds. And often it, they're, you know, on those points, there's some sort of like thick cover, some sort of, some sort of like stem town or, or type of vegetation that creates some sort of good cover in there that might be unique to that ridge system. Like some of the ridge might be kind of open, rolling hardwoods. And then for whatever reason, there's more sunlight or some down trees or something, this point, you know, has a buck bed on it. So, but, but it, it's pretty standard 
that they're going to be bedded more on that leeward side. So always, you know, always think, you know, wind coming over their back and they're facing, you know, downwind. And then if you get into like, you know, creek bottom ground, river bottom, like I said before, they like those, they like those uh, river bends, the small ones, um, the big oxbows, they'll sometimes bet on those too. And a lot of times they're bedded like right up against the water and with the wind kind of coming from the mainland, like blowing through, you know, down to the, the river bend or down to the oxbow, like blowing out over the water so that they can get a quick escaper out there. If you're talking like um, marsh or swamp, you know, you're looking for that edge. You're looking for, you know, the big lone tree that's out in the middle of, of um, a bunch of vegetation that looks kind of monotonous, or you're looking for the point that points out into the point of a different type of cover that points out into that marsh or the island. Um, all of those things that create a little bit of structure, those are where the beds will be. And you can sometimes look at a map and predict these and go out there and, yep, there's a bed, you know, like, if you get good at it, you can do that. That doesn't always, it doesn't always mean like, oh yeah, that's a big mature buck bed. It might just be a buck bed or it might end up being doe bedding or that's why there's really no sacrifice for getting out there and getting boots on the ground, but being able to read a map and pick out likely bedding can save you a lot of time and a lot of like walking. You can just go to those high percentage spots. If you're talking about like farm country, a lot of times where they like to bed is a lot, a lot of people make the mistake of, you know, walking through the field to get into their little woodlot. Well, what the bucks, a lot of times what they like to do is they like to bed right on that edge facing the open, you know, like just inside the woodlot, but facing the downwind side, overlooking that open field. So you think you're being smart, putting the wind in your face and accessing that woodlot. Well, there could be a buck right on that edge, hmm. you know, staring at you. <laughs> And uh, he takes off, you go sit there, you don't see anything that evening. You're like, well, no, he wasn't here. Well, a lot of times they're, they're monitoring that. So what I've learned to do is coming in from the side. Don't, you know, I've never liked to come in straight downwind through open ground because bucks and does will, will bed there um, in the interior, but where they can see that and, and monitor that. So, you know, when there's limited cover, like in farm, there's nothing that's remote. So they're looking for things where they can, that are either overlooked or where they can monitor. So you got to keep that in mind. The other thing they like in kind of that wooded setting or that, that broken up farmland is they might be more interior of the woods. So they like to be on the interior transition of like, you know, wet to open, like wet, wetland to open or, or thick woods to more open woods. They'll, they'll be bedded just inside that transition where it's a little thicker. They'll be just inside the thick overlooking the open. So they're essentially doing the same thing. Instead of looking through the open field, they're looking into the open timber. So that's that's a good place to to kind of scout for bedding. It really is important to it's very, very important if you are a hunter like me who doesn't own his ground, who can't plant food plots, who can't sit back and hunt, you know, and wait for the buck you know, necessarily to make a mistake in the food plot or, or something like that. It's very important to learn where these bedding areas are. It's such an important piece and probably the most important piece because now you know where you can access without, you know, being detected and, and where this buck likely is bedding and where the does are bedding and where he's likely, head, you know, moving to, uh, you know, in the mornings or where he's heading from in the evenings. And I'm not saying a, a big buck beds in the same spot 
every time. I don't believe they do that. Every buck's different, but um, I I do think that they have their favorites, and I do think they have the ones that they spend the majority of the time in. And you know, if you can start nailing those down, it's a, a big piece of the puzzle uh, that can help you. So, man, that's some great info. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Hey, I've I've uh, man, I've already had you over on here for well over an hour. Um, let's, let's kind of wrap this up for, with uh, a question. I like to ask a lot of folks that just, you know, for, for any new hunter out there that may be listening, you know, maybe they're going to be hunting on public land here for the first time this season. What, what's kind of the, and, and I know we've talked about a lot of, a lot about this throughout the, the podcast, but maybe what's that one piece of advice you'd kind of give them to, to get them started off on the right foot and, and maybe you know, have success a little quicker than they would otherwise. Yeah. I would say, um, without a doubt, my, my success would not be the same if I didn't spend the amount of time scouting that I do. So I scout if I had to guess probably three to four times more than I actually sit in a stand or, or hunt. So I, I spend much more time scouting than I do hunting. You know, it's easy for me cause I love, scouting i really enjoy it but it, it without a doubt translates into better success for me i'm just more prepared i've located more bigger deer i've located more high percentage spots like i talked about earlier the more i scout the more i dissect things and figure things out the more confidence i have and it just directly affects my success and i mean honestly the, the more i do it it's like the more success i find on, on every given year so i just i stress and prioritize scouting just get out there and, and try to learn your area as much as you can before the actual hunt and you're gonna you're just gonna be in a much better position for success yeah absolutely it's, it's definitely uh, <laughs> improved my hunting and my success since i you know several years ago just started like you said just getting in the the habit of of scouting year round. And I, man, I've got to where I enjoy that. You know, I won't say as much as the hunting itself, but, but it's a, it's a close second just getting out there in the woods and exploring, you know, all the time during the off season. No, it's so fun. It's so fun figuring things out. I get, I just get a kick out of like, when you find that buck bed, you know, you find that big bed, it's like, Holy cow, this thing's worn down to the dirt. (laughs) Like this deer spends a lot of time here. And then you're like, okay, where's the food source? Okay, the food source is up here over, you know, over on this ridge. There's a nice oak ridge over there. How's he getting there? You know, what, what time of year is he using this bed? Where are the trails, you know, leading to and from this bed? Is there a scrape nearby? Is there a, a water source that's in between here and, and that oak ridge? Like all those things, you're starting to figure it out. It's like, boom, you, you got this, you kind of have this little hunt nailed down, right? You got a lot of confidence in. So, hey, that's, that's, one thing that you have in your favor going into the next hunt, but keep scouting because I might find 20 scenarios similar to that. Now, what are my chances of success now that I found 15 to 20 scenarios where I have that type of Intel, that type of confidence? Like I'd have to be one of the most unlucky guys in the world to <laughs> not have some success with yeah. that type of preparation. Right. That's right. So now if you, if you, if there's a guy that doesn't do any of that, he goes, shows up at the same piece. Now what's his chance of success? Much lower, you know? So it, it is, it's a, it's a huge part. Um, I think if you, if you go into it and you enjoy learning and figuring things out, you, you, it, it will, like you said, become one of 
the favorite parts of the hunt. It certainly is mine. Like I love scouting and even in season, like I have no problem scouting in season and, and foregoing a hunt. Like I'm not one to just go and sit and hope just to be in a tree. Like I, I don't have a, a really strong, confident sit of where I'm, I'm going in to kill either a high percentage spot or a, maybe a, a local home, you know, a Michigan buck or Ohio buck that I know. I'm scouting. I'm looking for that confidence that I'm not going to just go out there and sit and hope and just summer spot. And like, you know, that might happen here. I'd rather spend that time scouting and make that sit when I do decide to dive in and sit, make that a very, very high percentage sit. Good stuff, man. I appreciate your time coming on here and talking to us. I know I've learned a lot and I know the listeners have as well. What, what's the best way for, for folks to kind of keep up with you, I guess, on social media? Well, um, not super active on social media. I, I have an Instagram account. I won't, I don't say I'm, I'm post on there too much, but I usually post my success a little bit. Maybe, you know, maybe some experiences here and there. I need to get do better at getting <laughs> on there more, but um, I have a few podcasts out that I've done with, you know, Wired to Hunt, a few others. They're probably not going to sound too much different than what I just did with you. So that they might not be that interesting, <laughs> but I have some articles out there that I've written, you know, Peterson's bow hunting, Woods and Water Magazine in Michigan, you know, several others. And there's going to be Mark Kenyon is, is kind of bringing back Wired to Hunt a little bit more of the content. So there will be some some articles and some entries and coming, you know, coming off on there too soon. So All right. keep an eye out for that. Good deal. Well, again, I, I appreciate your time and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. I always enjoy hunting and I appreciate you having me. All right, guys, that concludes our interview with Andy May. And hey, thanks for listening to our very first episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, We're glad to have you. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.